What's up, folks? Welcome back to the Whoop Podcast, where we sit down with top athletes, scientists, experts, and more to learn what the best in the world are doing to perform at their peak, and of course, what you can do to unlock your own best performance. I'm your host, Will Ahmed, founder and CEO of Whoop, where we are on a mission to unlock human performance. That's right. You can get the Whoop membership, hardware, software, analytics, the new Whoop 4.0. It helps you understand and improve your health. Check that out with the code WILL, W-I-L-L, and you get 15% off a Whoop membership. This week, we're excited to welcome Dr. Robin Thorpe for an episode on the science of recovery. This is the second of a three-episode series, which also includes the science of sleep and the science of strain coming soon. The series is demystifying these core concepts, answering common questions, and debunking myths with some of the leading experts in the field. Dr. Thorpe is best known for his work with some of the world's best soccer players. He spent nearly 10 years with Manchester United as a senior performance scientist and conditioning coach. He's also helped world-class track and field athletes, Olympic gold medalists, and world record holders in the lead-up to their biggest performances. And a lot of his work is balancing training loads with recovery. Robin sits down with our VP of performance, Kristen Holmes, who you all know and love, to discuss the physiological and psychological benefits of recovery and really how you can get your body to perform at its peak. They discuss what metabolic fatigue and structural damage are and how that changes how you should think about recovery, different recovery modalities and how they affect your body, what you need to know about hot therapy and cold therapy, and why HRV is such an excellent measurement of recovery, both physical and mental. Without further ado, here are Kristen and Dr. Robin Thorpe. Dr. Thorpe, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I will say I distinctly remember the first time we spoke. I think I like I literally just start, first started working at Whoop, and I was actually pretty familiar with some of your research from my coaching days, uh, specifically your work on muscle damage, endocrine and immune marker response to exercise, I believe, and just your reputation in the performance space generally. So I was actually really nervous for our call because I had this feeling like you were going to absolutely grill me. <laughs> and you did. Um, I mean, just just you asked me super, super in-depth questions on how we you know, calculate recovery and HRV and sleep validation. And um, it, it was awesome because I was like, wow, if I get to talk to folks like this every day, I'm just going to learn a ton. So um, it was a it was a really cool first call kind of and uh, really made me appreciate the level of expertise, you know, um, certainly that you had. That paper's taken me back. That was a few years ago. But I know, I know. I'm, uh, I I'm, like, I'm, glad I, I'm glad I grilled you. That means I was doing my job correctly. That's right, right. And, and that's what's, I think, so cool. You're a scientist, right? And it's your job to be skeptical. And, you know, you're caring at the time. You're working for Manchester United and you're really your role was to help the players stay healthy and, and fit. So maybe we can start there. Um, if you just want to talk a little bit about, you know, what got you excited about recovery? Because it was really, you know, you were very early adopter. I mean, really, I, I don't know if this is 100% accurate, but the concept of recovery was very new, I, th I think, when we even when we think about a decade and a half ago, and you were on the forefront kind of doing re research and trying to figure out how to um, how, how to actually apply some of these recovery principles in, you know, an environment that's going a thousand miles an hour that, um, you know, really isn't used to using recovery concepts, you know, and, and using recovery monitoring to kind of, uh, you know, prescribe load. So maybe just talk about where you started and, and kind of how you began to socialize these concepts and, and your work at Man United. Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned before that obviously I'm a performance scientist, but I mean, originally I was a coach and a performance strength and conditioning coach, but I think when it comes to applying the sort of scientific side and nature of, of things, I think I like to look at it that most decisions and how I work with athletes or, or other coaches and staff is that I try and apply some scientific rigor to sort of every decision and every framework that I, I try and um, lay out with those key stakeholders. But I think from how I sort of got into this space was again just being a sort of performance scientist and an SNC coach in the early days at Manchester United back in the sort of late the late sort of two thousands. Um, it was always born. We had a great department at the time, and we were probably really one of the only sports science or performance science departments 
probably in the world at that point in, in elite sport. And it was simply the, the manager at the time, the head coach, Sir Alex Ferguson, who would, who would ask the question whether or not the players were ready to train or play at the weekend. And of course, we, we were able to answer that with, with some level of, of confidence with the information that we had and, and the expertise within our department, but we never really knew to, to a real high level of confidence, like providing those answers and the solutions. So that, that sort of triggered me to, to undertake a PhD on the side of the, of, the, of the role of a sports scientist with the players. And all the data that was collected through that PhD was with the first team players. And the aim was to, to try and better answer that coach-led question of, well, are they, those players ready to train or ready to play? So that, that started initially to understand, well, how can we understand if they need to recover at all or not? And I think that's, I think, a really important part is that's probably if anyone is looking to enhance recovery or figure out how they can recover more optimally i think it's important to understand if you even need to or not in the first place so that first part of monitoring understanding more about how our fatigue levels or our recovery status whatever we want to call it our readiness that was always going to be the first port of call and then following that and when we started to unwrap that massive area of recovery and the systems that that are the subcomponents. Then it was about well, how can we best manage it, and how can we best accelerate recovery with the potential recovery strategies that we have on offer, or the athletes these days have available to them. And again, what has been done in the research as well. So I think that's how it all began at the beginning. And I think I think we did that in the right way, and I think we did it in a, a really solid. Uh, manner through a PhD research process um, that was applied and it was again that was one of the first applied PhDs at the highest level of professional sport in the world as well so it was it was a great time to to be involved with that and almost sort of pioneer that type of process. You know and I think about again kind of how how early you were like this even just this word recovery you know wasn't um, ubiquitous across you know the sporting landscape so you kind of had to educate you know coaches and players on on what that actually means and I know because I know you and I know your work um I know that you are not into kind of injury prediction models necessarily but if you can just talk about your framework you know how you think about whether or not a player plays versus not and, and how you deliver that feedback to the coach for example early I think it starts with understanding the subcomponents of recovery so if we take recovery as this sort of this single entity that the sort of world almost observes recovery within it, I think we need to definitely be critical of how we look at that, and we we need to definitely understand how, what the subcomponents and those systems are and how they interact together. So I think the first thing we need to do is understand the demands of our sport or our exercise, if we're a weekend warrior, what are our demands of our general training regime? And then start to really unpick what are those physiological systems. And typically, there'll be a few things which are going to be out of our control in terms of environmental. There's also going to be an element of cognitive or psychological demand. But I think it all, generally speaking, boils down to two subcomponents of muscle fatigue, and I think that's going to be a metabolic fatigue pathway and then a structural damage fatigue pathway. And I think the yeah. neuromuscular system feeds into this as well. And the neuromuscular system can tax both elements of these two systems. And if we look at the metabolic fatigue pathway, we know that there's variations and changes in things like lactate, acidosis, variations in potassium accumulation, glycogen depletion, a lot of these sort of oxidative stress, a lot of these typical metabolic stresses which which are ongoing within the, the muscle cell and the body when we exercise. So there's that one arm to think about. And then the second arm is this structural damage and that's most likely caused by a mechanical stress. So more like the sprint and the eccentric contractions. It may be a sport where you're accelerating and decelerating. Those types of movement patterns create this mechanical stress which can lead to structural damage and of course we know that there's other elements like a thermoregulatory interaction which can worsen these two 
systems of metabolic fatigue and also structural damage. But I think if we look at those two things in isolation, I think we get a better understanding of how we can then start to accelerate recovery with common recovery strategies that, that we all know that are available in the world today. But I think it's really important and the key take home is to really try and understand that recovery is, there are subcomponents, we shouldn't look at it as a single entity system. And then we should try and then next level is figure out a way of how we can monitor whether an athlete or whether it's yourself and you're a weekend warrior who, who runs for, for miles or you're involved in any type of exercise, how can we understand ourselves or how can we monitor ourselves to understand if we're in an element of metabolic fatigue or structural damage? Outlining those origins of fatigue are uh, really important. You mentioned the metabolic fatigue kind of symptoms of, and just if we look at, think about mechanical stress like that, symptoms would be what inflammation, um, soreness, you know, what are some other symptoms yep. related to mechanical stress? I mean, I think there was research even published last week that I think in, even after seconds and minutes, we have this inflammatory cascade that, that is infiltrated to the muscle cell following this mechanical stress. And like you say, there is the symptoms that we see are notably soreness. There could be some bleeding. There could be edema. There could be this, a lot of symptoms relate to this inflammatory cascade, mm -hmm. which again, it's, it's similar. It was described to me once as like a pimple or a spot where there's a lot of redness. There's the, the oozing of, of fluid and things like that. And it's sore to the touch. So that's some, that's also similar to what happens when structural damage exists at the muscle cell. But we also see issues with potentially, um, negative impact of the sleep and thing and so more sub and later stage symptoms related to structural damage. But I think right. monitoring muscle soreness and how our muscles feel in terms of DOMS, etc. I think that gives us a really good indication of whether or not we're experiencing some sort of mechanical stress and structural damage. Do we need to be sore in order to gain muscle? Well, I mean, that, I think that boils down to the, the, the question is, well, I mean, we, I think number one, we've understood or I'm trying to persuade the listener, right, we need to look at recovery and more than just one single entity, let's look at the systems. But then I think the second question as well is, well, do we even need to recover? Is the stress of the exercise or whatever we've done, played a soccer match or a football match, whatever it may be, does that stress, is that large enough or potent enough to incur a stimulus which we need to recover from? Do we need to return to some level of homeostasis? Has it incurred that stress level and there's so many factors that can influence that and being highly trained highly adapted phase of the season and like your question well do we need to be sore to build muscle well i know i think we know that soreness doesn't directly correlate with adaptation i think that's quite clear because there's so many factors from the response to load the response to exercise and training that changes how we adapt but i think in times where we are looking to adapt from a strength perspective or a power perspective we need to create a stimulus or enough of a stress response that we are going to like elicit those adapt adaptations and i think some of those adaptations are related to the structural damage that we can create through mechanical stress and so yes soreness is an indication that structural damage has occurred so in some way potentially the answer would be yes but from a sort of finite perspective soreness doesn't always equal positive adaptation and i think you mentioned maybe potentially a good definition of recovery is basically the body's return to homeostasis after stress would you say that that's kind of the the best way to define recovery yeah well, i mean i think it's, it's quite difficult to give it a good definition for yeah. honest. I'm, I'm still probably looking for that answer <laughs> but i think yeah i think a, a return if there's a a physiological stress which is has taken the human body and the systems within that to a reduction or a negative influence of homeostasis then our recovery process would be to return the body and those systems to that pre pre-level and again that can right. be from a psychological component it could be from an environmental right. perspective right muscle fatigue neuromuscular fatigue so i think there's there's, there's a lot of of subcomponents within that recovery umbrella that we we certainly need to to be mindful of. Perfect. Um, so, just kind of going back to the symptoms, like how 
will the kind of mechanical and metabolic symptoms manifest in the biometric data? Kind of what have you seen in your in your practice of just measuring, you know, all of this biometric data and subjective data? You know, what do you kind of see bubble to the surface as being kind of most essential in, in kind of tracking? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a great question and it's it's a quite a broad question as well because that was that was one of our first ways from our research, right? What, yeah. what, how can we understand the, the negative impact of, of exercise from, from football, from soccer, within some common metrics that we can, we can actually assess in, in the sort of, in the environment. And I mean, the first thing is, there's so many metrics out there that we can use, and there's so many products out there that we can use. And I think the research that we did, we've actually found that just asking valid repeatable questions in questionnaire format to athletes was actually one of the most sensitive methods of understanding whether or not we had structural damage or metabolic fatigue. And the way we did that was effectively what we've already discussed. How sore do you feel? Yeah. So that question, again, if we do that in a very stringent manner and in a systematic way, because we can use statistical um, analyses around that to, to really heighten the sophistication of the tool. But that really gave an indication of whether or not there was some effectively the mechanical stress and structural damage. Right. And then we also asked whether or not the athletes were fatigued and how mm-hmm. and, and their level of, of sort of perceived fatigue. And that gave us an indication of some of the symptoms associated with metabolic stress. So heavy legs, being tired, mm-hmm. a sense of lethargy, which all have small correlations with some of these metabolic pathways, whether it's acidosis, uh, the changes in these protein ions, potassium, et cetera, et cetera, or even glycogen um, levels. So even just asking simple questions or understanding from the individual, being really aware and conscious of how you feel at any given point in time, I think can give you those, those first, that gateway to understand recovery and to do something about it, to accelerate back to homeostasis like we've discussed. And I think from, from that level as the gateway is using these questionnaire-based tools, I think we can then look to HRV. We can look to other heart rate-derived autonomic nervous system measures, resting heart rate. Is there a standardized exercise that we do regularly? Because if, we, if there is, we can also look at exercise and heart rate, peak heart rate, things like that. And, and of course, we have things like the use of more performance or neuromuscular type tests like a, I mean, a lot of sports teams now use force platforms to, to measure the direct force that athletes can apply into the ground. That can give us an indication of neuromuscular fatigue related to the other elements of our two pathways of metabolic and structural fatigue damage. So I think there's a, a lot of ways we can do that. I think still the key thing is to do it in the correct way and in a systematic way. But I, for me, key point num- number two is is start with, with real repeatable questionnaires. You know, we think about this in terms of, you know, non-professional, you know, sports and, you know, even collegiate sports to a degree. And I, I certainly saw this in my data when I was coaching um, my athletes data is that, you know, in the absence of kind of hard physical exertion, sometimes the athletes still weren't ready, <laughs> you know, we still didn't have the capacity, the perception that they could compete. And when you look at what's happening, you know, in practice the previous day, you're like, well, there's no real reason this person should be tired and, and they, should, shouldn't, they shouldn't feel heavy legs, right? But can you just talk a little bit about the uh, kind of emotional and um, mental component and, and how that might, how to think about recovery in those terms and what those signs might look like and, and um, how it might manifest in the data? Really interesting point, because again, a lot of the, the work that I've done and what I've described over the last few minutes has been mainly around muscle fatigue, right. but the, the cognitive psychological component is huge. And I think what the one great thing that we have is that we can measure HRV, which I think is probably the closest thing at the moment we have to measure some of those psychological or, or mental fatiguing properties. And I mean, that was one thing from, from a lot of my research was that the missing piece of the puzzle was this mental fatigue assessment measure. And we, we really, we, we, we figured, yeah, we, we can understand about the metabolic size, structural damage, 
we can we know about the environmental side we can measure some of the more anatomical clinical physiotherapy type things as well but the one thing we were missing was that mental fatiguing um, aspect but what we we, we really did know was that me- measuring HRV, I think, does provide a strong element of the mental fatiguing aspect. So an example that I think is quite interesting is that when this was probably in 2000 and probably 2016, actually, and we had a player and in, in the UK and in the Premier League, notorious for the, the winter and the Christmas period where the whole of Europe gets two weeks off and then the English Premier League just batter through and not only they batter through they play like two games in two days which from a soccer perspective and the demands is is a tough tough ordeal and I mean it was always quite good for me because like right this is where recovery comes in I can I can earn my money here but we had a player and and again it's my belief that I don't think any Premier League player can play every game of the season yeah with the current demands I think I mean, I think we were saying this 10 years ago, and I think it's now even worse. But yeah, I mean, especially when you throw in international fixtures, like that I means just there's no way. I mean, the demand exactly, yeah, the travel and travel, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, no, it's no longer a, a 10 month season. It's yeah. now a year round, year round season. So, yeah. and, and we were we weren't doing great. The manager was under a lot of pressure, and one of our performing midfielders at the time, he was required to play all the games through the sort of December period and the early January. And we were still in a cup competition as well, which meant not only did we play two days over Christmas, I think we played almost two days in three days, first week of January as well. So it was, wow. a, it was a double blow. And at that time we were measuring HRV um, really, really well, really system, in a systematic manner. Players were bought in, managers were bought in, it was great. And this player, we, we, we were at a real close uh, view of, of how his nervous system and HRV, which again encapsulates the the mental fatigue aspect, particularly yeah. when we when players are having stresses from outside of the physical demand, totally. so mental yeah. stresses from social media, pressure yeah. of the team not performing, and and missing out on family that, events potentially that are happening during that like <laughs> vacation two week block that everyone in the country is having. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It all it all sort of feeds in, and yeah, and luckily the player. He got through nearly the majority of the fixtures and then actually came down with a, an upper switch tract infection at the end, like mm-hmm. a, a general sort of illness. But then what happened after that was, so he, he got through the, the nuts and bolts of it, but following that first week of January, he couldn't recover. He couldn't return to that homeostasis that we, we'd, we'd known anyway. His HRV was here normally. Right. We'd, we'd have peaks and troughs from... Just from well below his baseline. After this massive stress, which incorporates this mental side, yeah, we we were monitoring for another few months after that, where he was taken out of the team and his HRV hadn't even recovered. Wow. So it shows that that nervous system, I think, in high level stress situations, which includes physical and the mental component, yeah, you may be able to get through that initial real stress alarm phase, but I'd be worried about. The, the lasting effects of that type yeah. of thing. There's and real damage, end. you know, that's that's happening when you're not allowing your body to return back to baseline. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And again, we can we can always argue, well, whether it was, was it the muscle fatigue aspect or was it the, the mental side? Was it the pressure from external sources? But I think right. all that together, I think HRV does give us a, a general indication from that, that sort of proxy of the, the autonomic nervous system. I think that's why there's obviously I'm uh, drinking the Kool-Aid here, but uh, just a lot of value in, in understanding what your baseline is, right? And and when there are these events in, in your life that occur that creates a huge suppression and, and some of these metrics that we know are proxy for kind of, you know, mental and physical like wellness, um, you know, and, and, and if there are things that we can do to kind of strengthen our autonomic nervous system, for example, and get us back on track, I think that is... Um, a worthy path to to really consider and that maybe can lead us into uh, you know our, our next kind of discussion um I, i'd love to dig deep on recovery modalities you know i think the thesis here at whoop is you know what we're really trying to do is help people have more control of their physiology which you know at its root it's really having more control of your autonomic nervous system right and i think you know the world will kind of be divided into two camps there'll be those who have control of their physiology and those who don't and um, i think it's about having tools right and and really setting up a framework in your life to be able to 
you know, account for the things that are going to have the biggest impact on your autonomic health, right? And, you know, sleep is one for sure. But I'd love to talk through just some of the other modalities that have the biggest impact on the autonomic nervous system and our HRV and, and you know, hence just this overall kind of concept of recovery. I think it's a fascinating area. But yeah. just on that last point about the HRV, I think that the key point that you made, which is, which is amazing, is that these ranges of HRV that we probably need to understand certainly more about, but that's how we should look at HRV and that every individual has their little lower and upper range. Yeah. And I think if they're within that, that gives an indication of normality, but also whether or not it's turning into positive or negative. And I think when we go out of those ranges, both from a positive and negative point of view, that's where we should maybe look into it a little bit more. But each individual can have those ranges up and down that sort of HRV right. distribution. And that's not what we know. We don't know much about that and why, but certainly from the athletes that I've worked with, the, the very power-based, reactive, physical attributed players and athletes were very much more on the lower end. So that yes. more reactive, the nervous system can turn on straight away, bang, and they're ready to go. So, and we saw a lot more of the endurance-based athletes. So we would always do some endurance capacity-based assessments. Yep. And guess what? All, all the high performers particularly our centre midfielders who are these endurance-based athletes, they all have their ranges right at the top. Yeah. So I think that's really important. Uh, but anyway, back onto the, onto the recovery strategy. So Yeah, I, I definitely... Huge, huge area. I, lo- I love this area I because... There's a lot of confusion. Oh, huge, no. huge. Cause, yeah, yeah, so I think... Just timing, my, my frequency, are, temperature cooling, heating. So maybe start Robin. I I think because there's a lot of confusion and I know you kind of believe in thinking of of having frameworks, right? So maybe just start. So if we're looking at the literature, for example, and we're looking at, you know, all the literature around post-exercise cooling, for example, um, where I know you just published a paper on this, but you know, when we're looking at kind of the data, like what's the first question do we ask? What's the second question we ask? What's the third question we ask in terms of like, effectiveness and like just what's the framework in in your opinion on how people can kind of think about these modalities more broadly and then we can kind of dig into each one i think we certainly think critically so you asked like what is the first step well the first step is well what am i recovering from Mm -hmm. good like we discussed okay so if we are for example if we've played a soccer match you're going to be sore structural damage what we do know is from clinical work and just from years and years of, of research that we always use ice packs to cold an injury or cool an injury or we use ice baths. So that's actually a pretty good place to start because what cooling actually does in the event of structural damage where the muscle fibers have had a mechanical stress put on them, we have this inflammatory cascade which cryotherapy and cooling can actually reduce the secondary phase of. So we know that actually happens. And so if we cool the skin, we cool the tissue, we can then probably reduce this secondary phase of the inflammatory uh, infiltration. And we actually hope to as well reduce blood flow. And hopefully in some cases, there is some work in, 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 in other areas of reducing metabolism as well. So that's, that's our first port of call. If we are in structural damage phase, we have soreness, we have a game like football or soccer, we want to cool the area because they're likely to have some structural damage. And then second phase, well, how do we do it? How do we cool? Well, we know there's whole body cryotherapy, which is really popular. Mm-hmm. We know there's cold tubs, ice baths, we know there's ice packs. There's phase change material, which are pretty much ice packs, which can keep regions cool for longer. And we certainly know that the idea is to cool for as long as possible. So then that makes me think about, well, you've got cry, whole body cryotherapy in, in the chambers, which is air. We have cold water immersion in ice baths bath and ice tubs, which is liquid. And then we, the ice packs are solid. So we're actually thinking about physics now and it's the law of thermodynamics. Mm. And we know that liquid is going to cool at a greater level and potency than not just air but also solids as well so our second phase right let's use cold baths and cold tubs because no we're going to get a better response we're gonna, and, we, and we have literature around this as well and as well it's, re, it's reasonably cheap if you're a weekend warrior like we've discussed we're in a cold bath at home 
which is going to be around 20 to 22 degrees Celsius, mm -hmm. which I don't know in Fahrenheit. Uh, 40-ish um, is fine. There you go. Um, yeah. It's going to do the job. It's going to do the job. And yeah. making sure you're inactive afterwards is, is going to really help lower and drop that, that, that tissue temperature, which, again, is going to be the real aim in reducing that secondary damage phase following mechanical stress and subsequent second, uh, structural damage. If we're interested in adaptation, it, would you recommend the same protocol? Well, so again, we have to think what adaptation. If you're in, if you're looking, so if you're looking to improve strength power type adaptation, so you're someone that's in the gym, you're lifting weights every day, or you're in a power or strength based sport, or even if you're in a team sport, which the phase of that training uh, period is going to be strength and power, then we know that this cooling of this secondary sort of damage phase that's going to reduce those adaptations because right. that secondary damage phase is there to improve fitness it's in there right. to create a cellular response to, to to get fitter get stronger people really have to understand their intent right like what are they actually trying to achieve with the workout and how does that modality either help accelerate exactly. that or or not right like the, exactly. i think that's a really important exactly way to think but the about flip it. side is that it very highly endurance based training cooling actually can, there's, a, there's a, a gene expression, a cellular response where cooling can actually improve that. Right. So it is really, it, it can be confusing, but I think yeah. simplifying the process is understanding. Again, it, it sort of comes back to the first point of, of the, the podcast where it's, well, do we even need to recover and what are we even recovering from? So I think, yeah, if, if you're in a phase of you're trying to really get strong, resistance training, power training, I would avoid using cold baths. However, the other flip side is what is the actual practical nature of that blunting adaptation? Because we know, yeah, there's a cellular blunting. We know we get, we get a reduced cellular response, but what does that actually equate to in a performance? Is that even going to have a reduction in what you can lift or your power out? But we still don't know that. But I think the safe side would be if you're looking and again the take home is if you're looking to improve strength power i would stay away from cooling muscle following that that training stress and, and that damage response and i think the flip side would be we could maybe use heating hot water immersion or any form of sort of heating the tissue to maybe actually to get a, a greater response from that so it's a uh, again it's, it's it's by no means a simple process but i think if we we sort of unlock and sort of unravel some of these components of what we're trying to do, I think we can we can start to get to whether we want to cool or potentially heat. And I think those those temperature based modalities are probably the most promising from a recovery point of view. Of course, sleep, nutrition, hydration, and for me, joint range of motion, maintenance, are the, they're the kings, they're the fundamentals. But following that, like you mentioned at the start, there's so many recovery modalities and tools that we have on offer. Right. And I think really the temperature based ones are probably the most promising. So I think it's about understanding when and how to use them mm -hmm. is going to be a great tool for, again, not just athletes, but for the general population to have in their toolbox. So if we think about it from kind of where we started, the origins of fatigue, right? The, the metabolic and structural. And I think too, like we can consider just kind of cognitive and a mental emotional fatigue, right? I think are real legitimate buckets that we should consider. Would you say that we can put modalities, kind of anything that increases circulation, for example, would probably fall into the metabolic and manual therapy would kind of flow, you know, fall into the, the structural. Um, is that the right way to kind of think about these modalities? And if so, kind of how would you, if we talk about metabolic first, like what would be the most efficacious ways at like addressing that origin of fatigue? Yeah, certainly. I think that's completely the best way to go at it. I think we, sh we should have these buckets. And I think you're right, right, what falls into structural damage and what falls into metabolic fatigue and definitely metabolic fatigue, anything that's going to increase circulation, again, remove some of those metabolites and byproducts which are negative away from the area is going to be helpful. If we can do that with low load or low mechanical load, then yep. even better. Like a zone. And I think heating... Zone two training would be yeah I, I, yeah I think anything recovery. off I think anything off 
off feet as well. I mean, if yeah, I think like if, if, if you're in a period where you've just essentially you have had a, a large day from a, an exercise perspective, and it is maybe let's say it's running, then do you want to increase that circulation from running again the next day, where we could put some of those joints and some of those mechanical tissues under a bit more pressure? So cycling, but in that you mentioned zone two, in that type of heart rate percent range right. where we know we're not getting a, a big response metabolically yeah but we're increasing circulation we're we're, right. we're effectively pumping and using some of our muscles to pump around blood and again yeah. try and resynthesize those byproducts and metabolites yeah. and i think heating can have, have that effect as well so we know from heating the tissue we get we do get a cellular response related to healing but yep. also, if you're, for example, if you you have access to a hot tub or a jacuzzi, Sana. we know we have the the pressure of the water, which can increase blood flow. We know we have the heat, which can do that even more so. And of course, if you can always cycle your legs in the water, so you have no mechanical load, you've yeah. taken away gravity, and again, you're sort of ticking every box. I think from a metabolic perspective, that's definitely something I would recommend. And again, yeah. we've discussed cooling from a structural damage phase. I think the really interesting parts of this is where does all the manual therapy stuff and all the other things that are popping up here, there and everywhere, where does that fit in the framework? And unfortunately, there's not much physiological evidence for those types of things, like massage, like yeah. any type of manual therapy. I think there's However, a psychological component though. Exactly. You know, and we've exactly. seen that. And that's where... Like for me, it's never about taking anything away. And if an athlete loves yeah. having a massage, we all love having a massage. It feels great. <laughs> but we just should acknowledge, well, we're not moving blood. We're not moving anything. But we are getting a good perceived effect, good psychological effect. So I think right. in, in, in the absence of, of times where we know we need to improve recovery or our subcomponents of recovery from a physiological manner, whether it be cooling, heating, offloaded, um, circulatory work then I think that's when we say to athletes or the general population right do what makes you feel what makes you feel good within reason yeah. recovery modalities I think to your point like if it feels good it's probably going to have a positive effect what you believe is is happening has a super powerful effect on your physiology right and and there's there's some good evidence to support that so I think figuring out as you think about these modalities, you know, I think that's a one way to think about it because most of these are not going to really do harm for the most part, right? But there's a way for talking about optimizing, for example, cold so, therapy, if we want to adapt, you know, maybe shutting down or inhibiting mTOR response is not what we want to do, right? Like, so yeah, yeah we just have to be- However, I'll, I'll jump in there and I'll say, yeah. well, if we have- Let's go back to the example of it's the Christmas period in the Premier League and Man United have to play 26th and the 28th of December. Mm -hmm. And a player on the 27th, so the only day in between the games, he's playing both games. Yep. He only wants to do what makes him feel good, which is not necessarily what we know will improve mm -hmm. his physiological recovery. Yeah. Is that, would that not be a bit of a detrimental process for that athlete for that next game for sure i mean those stakes are really high you know and, and that's where exactly you know, the, so that, yeah the exactly. science so that's why take over and yeah and prescribe yeah. and that's why i think it's really important that we have these buckets of yeah right from a physiological perspective this book this bucket this bucket but i think we have a third and that is that perceived belief effect therapeutic whatever we want to call it bucket in which any recovery modality may go into because it could be that some players actually really love to do cold water immersion. So again, in the absence of, well, the, the stakes aren't too high as you put it, then yeah, let them do what they want. Because yeah. like you mentioned, this placebo, there's this athlete belief effect or human, human belief effect, yeah. which we all love. We all are exposed to it. We all have it in some way, shape or form, whether it's someone believes a magnesium supplement is gonna improve their sleep whether it is or not, they believe it. And right. does that make them feel great? Probably. And there's probably an element of ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss as well. So we do have to be mindful of that and it's very powerful. And also there's this placebo phenomenon where actually there are neurotransmitter um, changes within the brain during a intervention 
or a modality where it's medical yeah. or recovery that occurs. So we shouldn't think of a placebo effect as just, oh, well, I like to do it, so I'll, so it has a placebo effect. The placebo effect is true. So I think we that gets us into a little bit of trouble when we use the placebo effect as an excuse sometimes. Oh, well, I get the placebo effect. Mm-hmm. Well, just because you like it doesn't mean you are getting that positive effect because we also know we get the nocebo effect where we have a reduction in outcome. And do we... Well, one thing that is really interesting to me is we know we adapt to physical stress. So if the placebo effect is a, a psychophysiological phenomenon and occurrence, then if we are always doing things that support our placebo effect, then do we adapt to that? Because we know it's psychophysiological. Because we, we, we know we adapt to physiological and physical adaptation. So I think it's a, it's a really interesting uh, discussion point. And I think it should be, it can go either way. So I yeah. think it's something that we, for me, I like to try and harness that belief effect. So if yeah. an athlete has a belief effect, well, let's try and sequence. We have these buckets of recovery strategies now, metabolic, structural damage, therapeutic, and mm-hmm. the perceived athlete belief effect. How can we sequence these things in the best manner and framework to improve performance? And that's how I try and work with athletes now and with teams now or with just the general population now. How do we sequence these strategies and harness that belief effect in the right way to improve performance? Because it's, it's, it's understandable how it's human nature if we have a game on a Saturday or we do a half marathon on a Saturday and then on the Sunday we get a massage and then we sort of monitor how we feel Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and of course we're gonna, the body is, is great at naturally healing itself so no wonder if we have that massage on the Sunday our human nature is to attribute yeah. every improvement Right. That was going to happen anyway to that massage. So it's human nature that we're going to want to try and fixate and really grab hold of things that, right, that's why that worked because of that massage. So we have to think critically and sequence a lot of these things in the right manner. Because I believe instead of having that massage on that Sunday, if you do cold water on the Sunday, Monday, hot water on the Wednesday, massage on the Thursday, you would have accelerated your recovery way more and that also recovery curve has probably shifted to the left and you, you're back to homeostasis way sooner than you would have been by just having that generic recovery strategy on that Sunday. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And I, and I think in terms of just putting too much weight on one thing, uh, just like you shouldn't put too much weight on physical exertion impacting next day recovery, like folks have to remember that it's like, it's just, the sequencing and timing of these modalities is really important, but you know, it's if we're really thinking about okay, how do I actually show up tomorrow with as much capacity as possible? It's nutrition, it's hydration, it's sleep, it's you know, those are recovery modalities too, you know, uh, and we need to kind of think yeah. about them in those terms, you know, and and obviously these are lifestyle kind of behavioral things, but the more of these boxes we can check, you know, the cleaner we eat, you know, the more hydrated we are, you know, the, the better sleep and consistent sleep that we get. Um, and then layering in some of these recovery modalities we're talking about are going to add up um, to really position you tomorrow to be at, you know, whatever would be your potential for that day, um, you know, give you the best chance of reaching your potential for that day. Yeah, for sure. And I think you mentioned there that sleep, nutrition, hydration, and for me, I'm trying to, I'm trying to put this out as much as I can, like, just maintain joint range of motion. Yeah, so if sleep is more important, then what we do know as well from a cooling perspective and how cooling can also affect the nervous system is that if, when we cool, we actually improve that parasympathetic reactivation, which we can see in high HRV value. So right. if we are monitoring our recovery using HRV, we know that cold water immersion, not only will it improve our secondary uh, damage phase following structural damage and mechanical stress, but it can also improve our autonomic nervous system in the in the way of parasympathetic reactivation. So that's something that will, that's also been seen with improvements of sleep. So not only are we improving the nervous system in a certain manner, but we're seeing it an indirect positive impact on sleep. So can cool cooling or cold water immersion in the best form, in my opinion, 
can that be used as a indirect way of improving sleep? I think probably yes. Yeah. However, the timing of that is probably going to be really important because we also know that as we fall asleep, our body cools. And I think the, the, the sort of natural intuitive thought process, well, let's cool before bed. Well, we actually know that hot water immersion or a hot bath or a hot shower before bed stimulates this cooling effect of the body. Right, vasodilation. Exposure. Yeah, all the exactly, blood rushes yeah. to so, yeah. Yeah, so now if we talk about improving sleep through means of recovery strategies, then maybe a cold water immersion exposure or a cold tub in the day followed by a hot bath or a hot shower in the hour prior to bed could be a really good tool and a really good strategy for us all to use to improve sleep. So I think there's, a, there's, there's definitely ways that we can use these recovery strategies to try and bolster and boost some of these fundamental recovery components that we know is, 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 so, is so important. Because I think if you don't show appreciation to sleep, adequate nutrition, including carbohydrate, protein mm-hmm. consumption, hydration and also joint range of motion i think a lot of the other stuff we're really going to be struggling to have to see a practical performance improvement um in our daily lives or where it comes to recovery um or returning to homeostasis and then being able to perform in the subsequent days or weeks following so i think it's that's that's a really important point um and again we, we all know that things like alcohol as well can have such a yeah a sensitive impact to our hrv levels but I know this is something we've discussed in the past. It's, well, is it that alcohol is very sensitive to HRV or is it that alcohol is actually really sensitive to our recovery? Because I think potentially there could be an offset in power between those two um, associations or those two relationships. So I think that's, a, that's also something that I think when we do monitor our recovery from a HRV perspective, that we should understand that alcohol has a very, very sensitive effect to HRV levels. And that maybe doesn't necessarily have that direct and that same power to overall recovery. Yeah, I mean, we definitely see that in our data, you know, at a population level, like alcohol is just like absolutely yeah. crushing to next day recovery. Yeah. Um, but again, it's, it's brilliant though, because that, that it just boils down to thinking very critically about some of these measures. And well, yeah, we know that there's a, a physiological change. Right. But what is the practical importance of that change? What is the practical import, importance of that HRV being dropped a little bit? Because it may be in some circumstances, yes, well, maybe the next day, Let's, let's ease off it. Let's use some of these recovery modalities that we can use that we know can maybe stimulate HRV, like cooling, mm-hmm. but let's not maybe throw the baby out with the bathwater right. and assume, well, yeah, really the HRV is very sensitive to alcohol in this circumstance. It's lowered, but really my recovery or my ability to train again or do X, Y, Z still is maintained to a certain extent. But again, it's a very tricky and it's a very deep area which probably needs a little bit more work on i love thinking about like the autonomic nervous system more more as like a muscle that you can kind of train and i and i think that's you know just the last 10 years or so i feel like it's becoming you know people i think now are like all right this is actually um we can improve our autonomic control you know by engaging in in certain types of modalities for example and we've obviously been talking about a, a few that uh, you know stimulate the parasympathetic branch of the nervous system, which is going to help promote recovery. Other ones I just wanted to, to talk about real quick, yoga nidra and resonance frequency breathing um, are two that have really emerged. I think when you look at, you know, if you do kind of a meta-analysis of the literature that exists, like these kind of bubble up to the surface as being really efficacious and um, promoting uh, increasing HRV. So really just two that actually mediate heart variability. And there's very few things that we can point to in the literature that we can say actually improve HRV and these are two that can. What are your kind of thoughts on just, I guess, breath work in general? And then, you know, what are your thoughts specifically around yoga nidra and resonance frequency breathing? I think going back to one of those points you made was, it's, can, we, can we try and find methods or tools which can improve some of our ultimate nervous system um, components? And again, we've seen that cold water immersion and cooling yep. does have that effect and also certain breathing techniques as well. And I think it's quite intuitive that 
we know that sort of the respiratory system and ventilation does have a direct effect on on some of our HRV um, components and the infrastructure of that. So it, it makes complete sense. I think from my perspective, I think it's certainly something that I think I think it boils down to it's the same cooling. What is so we know that these methods can improve our HRV. We we know we can get into a nervous system phase from our again an indirect measure HRV where it's assumed that we're in a more restorative state so well, that is intuitively intuitively a positive thing but what is the practical difference or what is the actual how does that affect our life or how does that really affect what we do next so that's I think the next stage because we know that yes cooling breathing techniques right. definitely have this effect on the on HRV and, and the nervous system but we don't yet know really what that has effect from a practical point of view so I think that's the next phase I think that's where some more re some research should sort of go deeper into well yeah okay we have a tool from breathing techniques or from cooling that improves HRV so well what is the physical performance related from that do we see an improvement if we if we then start to measure and monitor that and research that. So I think that's the next phase because, again, yep. like you said, there are some tools we can use. But for me, I think when we try and advocate using them with athletes, for example, we need a real solid evidence and rationale this is going to really improve because I think particularly from a breathing technique perspective, if you have a squad or a team of footballers or soccer players, how do you, how would you really get them to do that? I think there's certainly... Yeah. You only have a certain amount of time to try and impose or recommend or, or, or train them in, in certain ways. I, I try and think back to I took a recovery session the day after a game for, for nearly 10 years. And so I always think, well, how could I try and incorporate some of these things into that, into that type of session? I think yeah. there's probably some ways where it may be a... I would always do some lower back mobility type work because, again, joint range of motion, one of my sort of yeah. fundamentals. Yeah, so we're my top six mobility. Yeah. Game. Exactly. And yeah. I think we've got to be careful with stretching other areas because there may be some structural damage. But right. in that type of mobility time and, and focus, could we incorporate some breathing technique work or similar to then also get more bang for our buck? Well, we're in this state. Let's try and improve that sort of HRV or that nervous system response. I think in, that, in those circumstances, I think it could be really valuable because I think standalone, it's probably something that athletes or the general population would do in isolation rather than yeah. within a team environment. But I think if we can incorporate that as a team in some way, shape or form, I think if you've got, again, those buckets and those areas you want to check from a recovery component point of view, you, if you can... If you can tick the mobility, joint range of motion with what well, we're doing a little bit of work to enhance our restorative state through HRV, then I think you're doing really well. I think you make a, a really important point that there's only so much time in the day and you have to prioritize, you know, which modalities are that are the are folks gonna do. And I think most importantly being able to lean on the literature to to, to say, okay, these are actually the most efficacious at you know, mediating heart rate variability, right? And I think that's one of the pain points of folks on the WHOOP platform is they're like, well, how do I actually improve my recovery, right? Like if I want to, you know, peak over the next few days, like what are the boxes that I need to actually check? And mobility is, is, is a massive one, right? Making sure that you're staying hydrating and avoid, uh, hydrated and avoiding alcohol. You know, I think eating in, inside a specific window of time, you know, restricting your feeding window is, is another, I think, really important. I mean, I think about that as recovery, right? I know that if I do that, it's going to enhance tomorrow's recovery and there's a nice downstream effect to having a, a you know, a, a specific feeding window as it relates to kind of your circadian rhythm. And then I think HRV biofeedback is one of the best ways, you know, to that's, it's not, you know, when you think about meditation, mindfulness, those modalities are, are awesome, and I, I don't want to diminish them, but they're hard for people, and I think they're hard for elite athletes specifically um, from just my experience, my personal experience, and then just you know working with elite athletes uh, as well. Like I find that that's a harder uh, modality to grasp onto, but when you give them something like resonance frequency breathing, which is an HRV biofeedback technique, you know, all of a sudden now 
Athens, all right, I'm following a pacer and it's based, you know, I'm trying to map my heart rate with my respiratory rate and I can kind of see it happening in real time. And I think that getting the buy-in there is like, okay, this is the one, you know, modality that we know has been proven to actually improve your heart rate variability, right? Like we'll see, a, you know, a parasympathetic effect after this session that is, you know, really obvious. And that leads to less anxiety, you know, um, it, you know, has all sorts of like positive effects. That's certainly the point, Kristen, as well, where I think we, we shouldn't probably forget that HRV is this indirect measure. And we shouldn't, yeah. I think maybe we should be careful. We're not chasing HRV numbers. It's no. going to give us that indication of what, well, this is going to give us in probability the best chance of X, Y, Z, like you say, reduce yeah. anxiety, better sleep. But I think we need to make sure the next level is, well, what, what, yeah, we've chased that HRV number or we've got to that point. We know that breathing or this cold water does improve it. Well, what is that relationship to yep. performance in exactly. sporting context or yep. the better uh, quality of life for the general population? With, yep. Like you said, reduce anxiety, mental health, all that type of thing. So I think that's, that's definitely the exciting like, point in time that we're at. And I think you also mentioned it perfectly. I think with any strategy is prioritization. What do we prioritize at any given time? And going back to the football um, and soccer and the athletes I work with now, it's at any given time point, whether it's in the week or the year or the day, that what is, be critical, understand what is your limiting fatiguing factor. And that's what we termed it was, well, at this time point, what is the most important thing we need to prioritize to make sure we get to a certain level in an hour, whether it's getting ready to train. The next day, is it, we've got a match, getting ready to perform. They're the things that we need to try and be really critical of and understand, right, what is the priority? Because like we say, we've got these buckets now, we have our athlete belief, we have our tools as well we can use to improve these indirect measures of rest and the restorative state. So, right, put that all into this framework and understand what is our limiting fatiguing factor. And then I think we're, we're way ahead of, of, of the majority in terms of improving performance, recovery, and lifestyle. And controlling our physiology. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which is the end state, yeah. This has been a super fun discussion. Is there anything that we kind of left out that you feel like is really important related to recovery that you know, folks who listen to this podcast should know? I think the thing we don't know a lot about yet is a lot of the percussion tools that which maybe you referred to as like massage guns or those types of things. Yeah, we don't really know much about them yet. I think the hyperbolt and yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. just being critical of what they're actually doing. I think they've been termed massage them. guns, but are they really doing that? Well, I hope not because we know from a, a sort of evidence perspective that that may not be doing a lot, but I think yeah. from a vibration point of view, which I think is actually what they're doing, mm-hmm. I think um, I think there could be some some promising research to to be conducted. But I think yeah, I think being aware and being quite critical of of what's out there and what actually things do, and really understanding whether or not it does work. But when we when we think about the word work, what what works? Does this thing work? Try and understand that recovery is that those sort of subcomponents of, of the stresses that we go through. And I think, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's one of my sort of key take home messages. And it's not just for elite athletes or, or, or sporting teams or organizations. I think we're in a day and age now where wellness, everyone wants to feel great every day. So maximizing some of these things, I think so. yep. it's only going to get bigger. And I yep. think the future of, uh, of this recovery space and the science of recovery is, is massive and I think it's really exciting. So, and I think using and having products like Whoop and being able to understand a little bit more about our physiology, our sort of biometrics is is definitely helping people understand more and being educated uh, about this area. Driving the right behaviors. You know, you start to figure out, okay, how, you know, what works for me, you know, and, and, uh, you know, am I trending in the right direction, you know, and there's really no need to, to guess anymore you know just given the fidelity of the you know the whoop and you know the the quality of the data you know i think it really gives us a just a nice understanding of you know how our body is responding and adapting you know and and therefore a nice picture of of a general capacity level you know where can people find you to follow your work 
all the all the usual places um instagram (laughs) yeah linkedin um instagram and twitter i'm uh dr robin thorpe or dr dot robin thorpe send me a a message or perfect or a tweet whatever it may be and i'll 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 definitely enjoy a conversation around this area and and again i want to learn more and i want to drive hopefully as well drive that community and that industry in the right way and like I said, I think there's there's so much more to be done in this in this space, whether it's monitoring and those mm-hmm. biometric factors, or whether it's managing and improving and accelerating recovery. I think it's it's yep. hugely exciting for for everyone involved. So yeah, please reach out, and I will. Uh, I can't promise I'll be that quick in responding, but I, I always make sure I respond. And we will be doing some research together in 2022, so I'm excited about that. Yeah. Definitely, I'm excited to. Uh, to continue the journey. Yeah, me too. Um, well, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Great. Thanks, Kristen. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. Make sure to subscribe to the Whoop podcast. Check us out on social at Whoop and at Will Ahmed. And you can get 15% off a Whoop membership if you use the code Will, W-I-L-L. That's all for now, folks. We'll see you next week. Stay healthy and stay in the green.